question didn't really get answered. I started off with a question of where are we supposed to go from here? Where as a church do we go from here? We talked about the back to school idea, the idea of moving into a new direction. We said, where do we go from here? We've been doing this. Same thing, same thing, same thing. Where do we go? And you know, I never actually gave you the answer of where we go. I'm not sure if you realized that when you went home and went, what was that all about anyway? What do, where are we supposed to go? But the one thing I did give you last week was the direction we're supposed to be headed. I talked about the fact that we're supposed to be on the narrow road and be a little bit different, be a little bit weird, because when we're walking differently than everybody else, people are going to look at us and say, what's wrong with them? What's different about them? We talk about being a part of the few, not a part of the many, not a part of the crowd that's just walking. We're talking about being salt and being light, being influencers in the area that we're at. That's what salt does. That's what light does. It influences the area that it's surrounded by. And when you want to ask the question, or if you want to know the actual answer, where are we going? I think it's kind of found in our mission statement. In our mission statement, when we first started out and said, hey, Paragon Church is going gonna, is gonna to go, we're going to reach the community, and we had to write all these things out for churches to give us support and to, to pray for us and all these things. This is what we put on our mission statement. Our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with our Paragon, Jesus Christ. By God's power, we want to see the unchurched transformed into a community of Christ followers and see our community of Christ followers go change the world. Now, maybe you've seen on our pens, on our papers, on our door. Come as you are, be changed, go change the world. I mean, if you really think about it, it's the simple mission that we have as a church. We want to see people changed so they can go change the world. And you know what? It's not our job to change them. It's it's our job to lead them in that change, to lead them in that walking with Christ, to see their relationship with Christ continue to grow. And as that happens, they will go and change the world because guess what? As they change, they're going to be different. They're not going to be the same. People are going to say, what happened to them? How did they go from this to that? Well, the only answer is, is Jesus. Jesus came into their lives and changed them into what they are. And today, as we're walking along that road, as we're taking those steps and walking that narrow way, guess what? Things are going to happen. Things are going to happen. People are going to challenge you. But along that way, as you are changing, something else is going to happen. A word is going to pop up that is another word, kind of like last week, we asked you to define the word normal, and you really can't. You can't define the word normal because the word normal is defined by a culture. Because normal here is different than normal in the southeast, different normal than the northeast, and definitely different than normal on the other side of the world. So as you look at that, you think, okay, that's normal. The word I want you to try and define today is this, worship. What is worship? What is worship to you? I mean, if you ask somebody what worship is, somebody might say, well, it's the songs. It's the songs that we sing. It's the hour that we come together on Sunday morning. That is worship. This is considered a worship service, right? But is that worship? Is that worship as a whole? Is that worship as everything? A lot of people think it is because the word worship, just like the word normal, has gotten watered down because normal now isn't what normal was 20 years ago, even in our same culture. And the same thing, worship now isn't the same as it was 20 years ago. So what is worship? Today I want to take some time and really examine the word worship. 
And I want to ask some questions that we may not get the full answer for. Because once again, we can't really define it. But I do want to share with you some definitions some other people have had for the word worship. A guy by the name of William Temple, he was a bishop in the Church of England. Now I want you to see, as I quote these different people, these people come from all different walks of life. There's the Presbyterians, there's the Baptists, there's the Reformed, there's the Calvinists. There's, but the word worship seems to fall in the same thing. That's the one thing they can all agree on. Look at it, he says this. The word worship. Worship is the submission of all our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness. The nourishment of mind with his truth. The purifying of imagination by his beauty. The opening of our heart to his love. The surrender of his, our will to his purpose. And all of this gathered up in adoration. The most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable. And therefore the chief remedy for that self-centeredness which our goal, or sorry, which our original sin and source of all of our actual sin. John Frame, he's a theologian. He said this, redemption is the means, worship is the goal. In one sense, worship is the whole point of everything. It is the purpose of history. The goal of the whole Christian story. Worship is not one segment of the Christian life, among others. Worship is the entire Christian life seen as a priestly offering to God. And when we meet together as a church, our time of worship is not merely a preliminary to something else. Rather, it is the whole point of our existence as the body of Christ. That's powerful. That's a powerful thinking of what worship is. It's not just a song. It's not just an hour. Listen to what Louis Giglio. Louis Giglio says here, Louis Giglio is a pastor of Passion Church. Maybe you've heard of um, the, the Passion Band. Maybe you've heard of a guy named Chris Tomlin. Anybody ever heard of that guy before? Yeah. Um, he's the worship leader at Passion Church. Uh, he's, the, he's part of that Passion movement. Louis Giglio is the founder of all that. This is what he says. Worship is our response, both personal and corporate, to God for who he is and what he has done, expressed in and by the things we say and the way we live. Worship isn't just what we say. Worship is how we live our everyday life. Now, if I were asked you to describe it, if I was asked you to define it, what would you say? How would you answer that? I can guarantee that if I were to do it, it wouldn't be quite as eloquent as those guys. But isn't it really what it's all about? The Webster's Dictionary, you know, not a Christian deal. They're not trying to define Christian words for us. But they define the word worship as a noun and a verb. And as they define it, one of the things in a verb is this, to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. To honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. You think about a verse we've used really over the last three, four weeks, kind of in a row, all from different angles. But Romans chapter 12, Paul gives us a great definition of what worship is. Listen to what it says once again. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual what? Worship. Do not be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Perfect. We see it, and, and our definition is right here, and it includes the, the hows and the whys in what he says here on what it's all about. Worship is presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. That whole idea of that, that, that definition that was right there, to have extreme submission, to honor with extreme submission. I don't know if Webster understood that when they were defining it, but that's exactly what he's saying here. The answer of why is there. 
Why do we do it? Because of God's great mercies, because he has saved us, because of what he has done, like Louis Giglio said in his definition. How? How do we do it? How do we worship? By sacrificing our bodies, by giving our all, everything that we have. In the Bible, it tells us, Jesus tells us, in, in Deuteronomy, it tells us, you know, you, you look at it, but we are to honor God. We are to love God with our heart, with our soul, with our mind, with our strength, and not part of it, but all of it. All of it. So what is worship? Well, worship, first of all, we have to understand this, is God-centered. It is not me-centered. It is not you-centered. It is God-centered. And when we grasp that concept, it changes the way we approach everything. Because, see, we naturally look inward. Naturally. We are selfish beings. And to be unselfish, to be not self-centered, that's something that goes against nature. Uh, I believe we talked about it last week. That's weird. It's not normal. It's not what we would normally do. See, a lot of us think of God as some personal genie that we have in this little box. And when we are in need, we rub that little box. God pops out and says, how can I answer your prayer today, Matt? No, we don't think of it that way. But isn't that how we actually approach it? Haven't we made God really small and put him into our own little what we need? I mean, when you really think about it, one of the biggest problems probably in the church, in our church and in all churches, is that we have too small a view of God. We have put him in our box. We have made him what we want him to be. And you know what the first problem that creates is? It makes us ungrateful. It makes us not think about what he's already done for us, but God, what are you going to do for us? How can you solve my problem? How can you answer this prayer? God, why aren't you taking care of what's going on over in Iraq? Why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you doing this? How come you're doing this? How come you're doing that? We go to God as if he is there to serve us. He was created for us versus the other way around. And that changes even the way the worship service works. That changes everything. Because even as we stand there and we say, you know, uh, you know, I've been to lots of funerals. And in the process of going to lots of funerals, you know, I get people to tell me, you know, when I die, because that's when people think about dying. When I die, I'm going to ask God why he did this. And I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to say this. And I said, do you really think so? Do you really think that when you stand before God, you're going to be gutsy enough to stand up and ask him the questions you think you're going to ask him? Because as I look through Scripture, that's not the way when God presented himself that people responded. They may have been in a situation that they could have done that. But every time in Scripture I see it, that's not how they responded. I just wonder if for just five seconds, I could peel back a curtain that opened up between the earthly realm and the heavenly realm, and we all could see God, just for five seconds, how much different our, the rest of our life would be. How much different we'd approach coming to church. How much different we'd approach waking up in the morning, because we got to. Because he blessed us with the ability to breathe one more day. How much would that change us? How much would that inspire us to go to a community that needs him? If we just had five seconds of looking at him, it's crazy to see. If you look throughout scripture, all the different things that are in here. Isaiah. Isaiah, there's, there's a passage in, uh, in Isaiah as he's writing. It starts off in, in chapter 6, verse 1. And 
what happens is, is he is, is under a king, King Uzziah. King Uzziah was a good king. And as a good king, he, I think he was on reign for 52 years. So you can imagine having a good king on reign for 52 years that is laying out great things. Well, when he died, they're worried about getting a bad king. There's a lot of worry that's building up inside. And you see at the beginning of this passage that 6-1, he says, in the year that King Uzziah died, which means in the year that we began to start to worry about what's going to happen next, he sees a vision. He says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and a train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, what? God, how dare you let Uzziah die? What are you going to do next? I am very worried. All the people that I know are worried about it. What is your deal? How can you let a good man like that die? Is that what he said? No, he said, woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You are God, I am not. I just came to that realization. Face to face. Guess what? Ezekiel, another prophet, living in exile. Babylon, the Babylonians had taken over, and he's living in exile, and he's away from everything. Plenty to complain about. God, how can you let your people be ruled by people like Babylonians? How dare you do that? That could be the question he asks. But look what he says in chapter 1, verse 26, as he writes. And above the expanse over the heads, there was a likeness of a throne, in the appearance like sapphire. And seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what the appearance of his waist, I saw it was gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what appearance of the appearance of his waist, I saw it appeared as what? A fire. And there was this brightness around him, like the appearance of a bow that is in a cloud on that rain, day of rain. So there was the appearance of the brightness all around. Such was the appearance and the likeness of the glory of God. When I saw it, I asked God, what is the deal? Why are we where we're at? No. What did he do? He fell on his face. He fell on his face, and he heard the voice speaking. You know, it's funny as I read this passage. I think of a couple of things. You see the idea of him trying to describe God. And how does he describe God? He goes from the waist up and then from the waist down. But how does he describe God from the waist up? As fire. How does he describe God from the waist down? As fire why didn't you just say you look like a big ball of fire you ever been in a place where you were at loss for words and you're like it was i was just then it was um there was fire and then um from then there was fire you, you have to think that he just saw god and, and he's at a loss for words standing before god and we think when we go before god that we're going to have this idea of what we're going to say and some of us say, oh, no, no, that's, I won't do that. I won't do that. But isn't that kind of the way we approach every Sunday morning? That we're going to come in here, we're going to tell God what we need. Every time we go to him in prayer, aren't we going to tell God what he needs to do and how he needs to do it? And he needs, he needs to fix this and fix that. And I think about, um, like I said, I've gone to plenty of funerals. It always seems at a funeral they, they bring up that, that passage where 
Well, now they're standing before, before Jesus, and Jesus is welcomed home saying, well done, good and faithful servant. I, I think sometimes we miss that. We miss the fact that, that maybe God isn't going to say, well done, good and faithful servant, because we failed to serve. We failed to do what he asked us to do. Instead, he's going to say, remember when you were questioning me on why I didn't do this? I'm going to now question you. Why didn't you do it? Why didn't you go to the poor? Why didn't you go do something about the problems that are in your city? Why didn't you go reach out to your friends who need to know Christ? Why didn't you not so good and faithful servant? What if? What if that were the case? You know, as I say, if we could just see God, how would we describe him? How would things change? How would we approach him? My guess is it will be on our face whether we like it or not. It's funny, I was reading in Ecclesiastes, and in the beginning of Ecclesiastes, it lays this out, and, and I want to do something. I, I told you, if, if you're first time here this morning, I apologize. This is a little weird for you, okay? But it, as we read this passage, I want you to see how we are to approach God versus how we actually approach God. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says this, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. How often do we approach God in that way? We let our words be few and we just listen. Instead of throwing up our offering of fools, as it says, we just listen and realize how big God really is and how small we really are. Because as it says here, God is in heaven and you are on earth. God is amazing and you are not. You ever gone up to the back of the mountain of, uh, of Sandia and looked out over the city and realized how small you really are? Ever stood on the beach and looked out over the ocean and went, I am tiny and God created all of that? Yet we approach God as if he is our servant, our genie. Like I said, I want to do something a little different today. When our approach to God is, is challenged, I think it, it's difficult for us to really worship him for who he is. When we get too worried about how worship is going to affect me, how worship is going to make me feel when I leave, it's not about us. It's about God. This service right here isn't about you, and it's not about me. It is strictly about us coming together and lifting up the name of God. But we don't approach it like that. I get people that corner me all the time, and I'm not even talking about from our church. People that know that I'm a pastor, they always say, because you know, we're a little bit more uh, progressive maybe in, in the way that we, we do things. We do things a little bit different. And they say, well, what about hymns versus worship music? What about the way that the service goes? What about putting tithes in an offering box versus actually ha passing a plate and have somebody sing? What about, what about, what about? And I said, you know what? It doesn't matter. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is our heart when we're singing either a hymn or a contemporary thing. Whether we're putting our tithe in a box or putting our tithe in a plate. It's about our heart, about the way we give to God. That's what matters. But when we approach God in a different way, when we approach him saying, hey, Here's all the stuff that you need to do for me. Or, hey, here's what I'm going to throw at you. Rather than just stopping and listening, it changes things. So what I want to do today is I, I want to pause for just a moment. And I want 
us to come to God and just listen. I don't even want you to pray. I don't even want you to, to say, well, this is what I think. Just listen. Just pause for a moment and prepare your heart for worship, to prepare your mind for worship. And I'm going to ask Stephen so it's not this really weird, awkward silence of preparation because everybody would be like, okay, that, okay, i got to do something. You know, I'm just going to, anything, just make noise, whatever it takes. I'm just going to ask him to play just a little bit in the background for us to prepare ourselves. And then I'm going to ask Jerome and Christy to come up. And we're going to sing. And we're not going to sing because it makes us feel better. But we're going to sing words to a song that lifts God up, that prays who God is. So I'm going to take 60 seconds, just 60 seconds of just preparing yourself. And I'm going to turn the lights off so it's going to be a little bit darker in here. And if you want to get down on your knees, do that. I promise. If you want to stand up and just raise your hand, I'm not going to call on you for a question. I promise. If, if you want to do something that gets you to the place where you are able to truly worship the Lord of hosts, as the angel cried out, holy, 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 separated, set apart, all by himself, the Lord of hosts, as we approach his throne with our songs of worship, with our praise, with our message, I, I pray that this 60 seconds will get you to that point. This week, Christy forwarded me an email uh, about marriage, uh, about relationships, and uh, it came from a group called Refine Us. Now, Refine Us is a, uh, is a couple, and uh, they, they kind of started this ministry because their, their marriage, they're, they're ministry, in ministry, and their marriage uh, suffered because of it. They, they kind of went separate ways. There was uh, different things that were involved in all on the brink of divorce, and, and God really restored them, and they, they've come back together. And in it all, they, they're now trying to help ministry couples and other couples as well. And this, this uh, email that I read this week was, was very fitting, um, you know, because it becomes so much about us in our relationships. And really, that is where the main struggle in relationships happens, is that we have two selfish people trying to come together to be unselfish. And that's a difficult thing. And uh, in this email, it was written for marriage, but I started looking at it. And thinking, you know what, this goes for all relationships. It goes for friendship relationships. It goes for marriage relationships. It goes for family relationships. It even goes with our relationships between us and God. So as we read this, I, I want you to kind of see some of the things. And, and we're going to pick it apart and pull it apart a little bit. These are the four things that were written in this, uh, this, this email. It said, our commitment to change isn't greater than our desire to change. Isn't that true in so many relationships? That, that's what causes struggles in our relationship, is that, is that we have a desire to change, but we aren't actually committed to do it. And that goes, like I said, in each one of these different relationships. But I got to thinking about that with God. You know, we have this desire to change for Him, but we're not quite committed. And I guess the best way to put it is, is maybe, uh, let's, let's put it on a, uh, something that we all can understand. Uh, maybe there's a time or two in your life that you've decided to diet, okay? And, and we have this desire to be our old high school weight. Uh, there is a desire that is there within us, okay? We, we want to be there. Um, I have that desire. I have been on diets and different things of that nature and tried to do the right thing. Now, um, God blessed me 
uh, as crazy as this might sound, with cancer that, that helped me lose weight really fast in a short amount of period of time. If you guys knew me when, when we very first got started with the church, I was weighing in about 264, and I lost uh, down to 190 in about eight weeks. It was, it was an amazing diet plan. I don't recommend it to anybody, but, but it got me there. And then I was able to start going to the gym, start building up strength, and, and keep it off. But I've got this little jello thing that's right here in the middle that I cannot get rid of. I, I want to get rid of it. I want to have that chiseled thing going, but it's not there. And the reason why is this, is because I have a mistress and her name's Little Debbie, okay? I, I stole that I, I stole that line from a, a thing that I read this week, and I said, that's exactly it. That's my problem. I like pastries. I like bread. I like the refined sugars. I like the things. You know, there's some things I can do without, like vegetables, but there's... There is this, this, these stars crunch in, in these nutty bars and, and oatmeal cream pies. Oh, my goodness, those are so amazing. You know? but, but, you know, there's a desire to change, to, to have this amazing, I could take off my shirt sometime look, and then there's what I've got. Because what I've got is a desire but not the commitment. I don't want to give up the, the little thing. You know, I actually joke with people. I say, well, I go to the gym so I can eat that stuff, so I just don't get any bigger. It's not that I want to get stronger. I just don't want to get bigger than, than I was. And, and we have that battle. And we have that same battle in our relationships. We have that same battle when we say, I want to change for you, God. I want to change for my spouse. I want to do this. But yet the commitment to actually do it is painful. And it's going to make us just a little bit weird. And it's going to make us mm, not seem normal and selfish like everybody else. That's a difficult thing. So our commitment to change isn't greater than our desire to change. The second one is this. We want to be right more than we want to do what is right. How often have you been in a fight where you know you're wrong, but you just don't want to lose? I get in that mindset way too often. Way too often. And that's both with Christy and with God. I want to justify what I have done and why I have done it and make the excuses happen, even though I know what is right even though i know what is right when we read the bible and we take it for what it says we know what is right yet we don't really do it because we want to justify by the normal standard of what the rest of the world says is right the third thing when we are there we aren't really there when we are there we aren't really there how many times have you had a conversation with somebody and had no idea what they were talking about when they were done. More times than not. Because you're like, over, I'm done. You know, that, you're, you're messing with your phone. You're on your computer. Uh, you know, there was a commercial. I was watching the, the Packers game on, on Friday night. Um, and they had this NFL fantasy football commercial that kept coming on. And they were judging the, the combine for the guys who were doing so well in fantasy. And they had a guy standing next to his wife at their laundry. Uh, and they were, you know, he was taking clothes out. But at the same time, he was on his phone checking his fantasy draft stuff and all the things that he needed to do, and he's just throwing stuff in the dryer, and she's talking, and the two players are like, man, this guy's really good. Because he's going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. How many times do we do that? And how many times do we do it with God? How many times do we come into this building or come into our prayer time, and we are sitting before God, and like we already said, he is so much bigger, and we start to lay out something, and all of a sudden we go on this weird squirrel rabbit trail. I'm chasing this over here. And then you don't remember what you're praying about to begin with. Where you come in here, and everything about tomorrow and all the things you've got going on at work tomorrow, that's all that's on your mind right now. That's the only thing you can think about. And God's like, hey, if you're going to be here, be here. 
Be in my presence. Talk with me. Listen to me. And we don't. The next one is, is we ask God to change our spouse more than we ask him to change us. Amen. That's right. We do. We don't we? And don't we do that in every relationship we have? Don't we do that with God? God, you know, if you could just, it'd make my life so much easier. Amen. That's right. We do that. We walk before God with that mentality. We would do the same thing. If you could just do this with my wife, my life would be so much easier. And she said the same thing about me. But we have to remember, it's not about us. In all those relationships, as we read through them, we really do have a problem with trying to be number one. We really do have a problem struggling with that. It's not about me. It's not about you. It is about the one true holy God. And that is why we come to worship. And that is the reason why we sing glory to God, glory to God forever. Take my life and let it be all for you and for your glory. Not for my glory, but for your glory. And we sing that and we sing it out loud. You know, I pray it's not just words on the screen, that it's an actual prayer saying, God, take my life. Take it. You know, we sing, and sometimes we worry about what other people think. So we're not going to sing out loud. You know, I always feel bad for Jerome when I'm sitting right here in the front. Just going to be honest with you. I'm afraid he's going to actually stop and say, Matt, you got to stop. It's not so loud. Okay? It's not, not so good. You're throwing me off. You know, the, 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 it, you know the, that's a reality. But sometimes we don't sing out loud because we're afraid what somebody else next to us might think or what somebody else around us might think. When we pray, we're afraid we might not have the words that are eloquent enough. That's going to sound good to everybody else. When we, when we do anything in the, in the lines of worship, you know, even if you want to put your hand up, people are like, oh, you know, maybe I should just do the, the half-hearted hands, you know, that just so people don't really see it. You know, I can keep it down here below the chairs kind of thing. I got my hands up, but not because I don't want anybody to, to worry. You know, maybe you want to do a little. I know if you went to a Baptist college, you're not allowed to move your feet. You can only move your hips. You know, that's okay. You can do that. If, if you're feeling it, you can move. It's okay. It really is. How you came before God is what it's about. Not about how you're coming before others. Not about what everybody else thinks. It's about what God thinks. We are going before the audience of one. We are not here to entertain everybody else. We are here to lift up our praises to God. And how you do that is how you do that. We cannot let everybody else hold us back. And like I said, it may be, it may be that way, just in the little things in here. But what about what we talked about last, last week? Saying, lay your all before God. If we have a hard time just laying the little things about how we sing or how we pray or how we raise our hands, if we let that be something we're worried about among church people, how are we going to lay our entire lives before God in front of non-church people when they go, what is wrong with you? How are we going to do it? Because we've got to be a little bit weird. You know, we've talked about this time and time again. But when you take the uh, illustration of this, time and money are very much the same. When you have a dollar and you spend it, guess what? You're not going to get it back. So how you spent it matters. Did you spend it on something foolishly or did you spend it on something wisely? Well, guess what? Time is the same thing. We all have 24 hours in a day. How you spend that time, either foolishly or wisely, it matters. So what are you doing as you come before God? What are you doing? How are you spending your time? How are you worshiping? What is it that you're worshiping? You know, I read somewhere along the way that it says that we are always worshiping something. 
we are always worshiping something. And I, I, when I read it, I struggled with it. I went, surely that's not true. Maybe there's, maybe there's some truth to it, but it's not fully true. We're not always worshiping something. But then I started looking at the definition. To honor with extravagant love or extreme submission. Are we always doing that? Whether it be God or not God? You know, football season starts in just a couple of weeks. In two weeks, as a matter of fact, we're going to have our kind of kickoff weekend. We're going to have some fun. We're going to have tailgate food. And we're going to ask you to wear your jerseys and do all that kind of stuff like that. And as we come before that, how many people do weird, crazy things at a football game that they would never do anywhere else? You know, I've never at church once seen the wave break out. Never. I don't like the wave. I really don't. I think it's ridiculous. I'd rather watch a game. That's what I got there for, you know, not to be a, whoa, you know, that's not, that, not, that's not. But we do weird things. People dress up, they paint their bodies. I haven't seen anybody walking to church doing that before. I haven't got the G-O-D in the back. You know, I haven't, we haven't had that. You know, th- but we do weird things, and, and we worship something with extravagant love or extreme submission. We give ourselves over to that thing. How often is it not God? How often is it not true worship? Because that's who he's called us to worship. It's himself, not everything else. And Jesus tells us as he's speaking to the Samaritan woman of the well what true worship is. Now, when we were going chronologically through the Gospels, we already hit this. But we didn't really hit the idea of the conversation. We just talked about the woman herself and and the things that she had going. But they had a conversation about worship and where worship takes place. And we kind of skipped over that, but I'm going to jump back to that real quick. In John chapter 4 is where the conversation is taking place. And Jesus already told her, hey, I know that you, uh, you've you had five husbands. The guy you're living with now isn't actually your husband. And, and she kept trying to change the subject. And he kept bringing it back around to this thing about worship, about the Messiah, about the one true worship. Listen to what he says in verse 23 of John chapter 4. But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now as we see this and and we see the idea, that's pretty powerful. That there are these true worshipers that worship in spirit and truth. Now there's two things that, that stood out to me that haven't ever stood out to me before. But as I read it this week, I was like, wow, there they are. First thing is, is this, what is spirit and truth? If a true, worship worshipers, a true worshiper worships in spirit and truth, what is spirit and truth? And the second thing that stood out to me was in verse 24. Verse 24 has a word in there that kind of caught me off guard. Let me read it for you again. God is spirit, and those who worship him, what? Must, must worship in spirit and truth. What does must mean? Have to. Have to. That's a, that's a big statement. So if we have to do it, how do we do it? How do we do this spirit and truth? What are those two things? Well, let's take a look at spirit first, because that's a word that gets thrown around a lot. Once again, another word that's been watered down. I mean, you think about it, I'm not really religious. I'm just spiritual. Heard that before? Absolutely. I've got spirit. Yes, I do. I've got spirit. How about you? Ever heard that before? Yeah, what is spirit? How do we worship in spirit? How do we get there? What does it mean? Well, this is it. Spirit is at the core of who we are. Spirit is the center of our will and the center of our emotions. That is spirit. We also know God is a spiritual being. That's what he says in in John chapter 4, 24, that God is spirit. 
So what it is, it is us doing something that is beyond the physical. It is us doing something that is more than just bending our knee or raising our hands. It is a posture of our hearts. I remember when people used to tell me, they'd be like, hey, uh, bow your hearts and heads with me in prayer. And I'm like, how do you bow your heart? You know, just, just, just let's be honest. Is my, is my heart really, you know, doing that inside my chest? What is going on? It's, a, it's an attitude of how we approach God. It's an attitude of humility. It's an attitude of being on our face on the inside, realizing that we are not God and that he is so much bigger than we are. And then when we say worshiping in the truth, it means it's based on the truth. And what is the truth? Jesus is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. The word that he has brought to us is the truth. So how do we worship in the truth? Well, we worship in the truth by knowing him. We worship in the truth by understanding how big he really is. We worship in the truth that when we sing, blessed be your name, when the land is plentiful, when the sun's shining down on me, when things are really good, God bless you. But when the road is rough and things aren't going good and I'm standing in a desert place, guess what? God bless you. When we come to that realization that he is bigger than our circumstances, no matter how terrible we feel you know people come into church and i don't know what load you've got on you right now but let me just let you know that a god cares and b god is bigger than it and as we worship him and say thank you for shaping me as you bring me through this he is there to walk alongside us through everything that we go every step that we take he is there with us when we realize that he is bigger we can focus on him and not on our problems And that is a huge step to take. Because some of us, we like to be martyrs. We like to have problems. We like to have people look at us and go, oh, poor, poor. No, it's about God. It's about glorifying him in the good times and in the bad times. That is what it means to worship in spirit and truth. It is to declare that God is worthy of our reverence. That God is worthy of what we have to offer. That God is right there. Revelation 5.12 says, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. God alone is worthy. Jesus is worthy. And true worship is God-centered worship. It's not about us. But it's crazy how many times that, that we come into a worship service and we really do want it to be about us. We do really want it to be about the feeling that we're going to have when we leave. We want it to be about how much I can get out of it. And people will leave churches over the fact that they didn't get anything out of the worship service. Or they will leave the church that day and say, oh, I just didn't get anything out of that today. But it's not about us. It's one of those crazy spiritual biblical paradoxes that we see that really when we come and we understand that it's not about us, that's when we walk out of here the most full, the fullest. We, we walk out of here saying, man, that was just a real blessing to me. It doesn't make any sense that we give and we give and we give to God. Also, we walk out of here like we got and we got and we got and we got. But if you look throughout the Bible, there's so many different little paradoxes that are just like that. I mean, read Matthew 10, 39. It says, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense in a normal world. How about John 12, 25? Whoever loses his, uh, loves his life will lose it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Once again, doesn't make any sense in this normal world. Matthew 23, 12, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Paradox. But we all know it's true. But how does that happen? Then we look at Luke 6, 38. 
when we think of that from the aspect of worship. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it will be the measure back to you. See, when we give our all to God, we walk away more full than we ever did when we arrived. So much so that we just can't even quite fathom it. When we come with empty hearts and empty ego and say, God, it's all about you. All of a sudden, we walk out and we say, man, that was the best ever. It doesn't matter how terrible or how great Jerome's saying. It doesn't matter how terrible or great that my message was. It's all about God and how he's lifted up. And we walk out and we say, yeah, God is worthy. Jesus is worthy. So I say we're walking on these steps. What are some practical things we can do as we're walking along this road, as we're being led in worship? What are some practical things that we can knock out? And I want to read to you seven things that I put down. The first one is this. Make sure that you truly believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. That is number one. When it comes to worship, if you don't know that Jesus has died for you, it's tough to worship him. But when you realize what you've been saved from, it's all about him. And it's all glory due to him. It doesn't matter what we do. We don't worship to get eternal life. We worship because we have eternal life. And that changes our perspective on everything. The second thing is this. Establish a daily time alone with God in the word and prayer. I know that's a difficult thing to do. It's my job, and I still struggle with it. I struggle being in the word every day. But you know what you can do? Like I said before, you all have 24 hours. You can block out a time and say, I don't want other stuff to crowd. I don't want other stuff to come in and be a part of this. I want to have my time. You know what we did last year, uh, strictly for the adoption, and it was a decision that I, it hurt. It was like pulling off the giantest Band-Aid on the hairiest body ever. It hurt. We gave up direct TV. Because we were saying, yeah, I know, yeah, you say it now, but the football season hasn't started yet. But the, the whole thing is, is we gave up direct TV because we didn't want to spend $70 a month on something that we were only watching a couple of channels anyway kind of thing. And we wanted that to go towards the adoption and the adoption process and everything. And it was funny because after the adoption was all completed, Christian and I talked about it and I said, hey, how about we consider, uh, now that we're not paying for an adoption anymore, maybe we consider getting DirecTV back. We started weighing the options. I said, you know what? You know how amazing it is not having to be a slave to the television or put your kids in front of the TV because you just want them to leave you alone for a second. That second turns into like three hours of watching Disney Junior. The, it, it's, it's crazy how much more actual family interaction that we have and how much I'm not sitting there staring at the TV and I got this extra time. I don't know where it came from. It just, just happened to appear in my life. And there's things that I can actually do now instead of being sitting in a recliner. And there's things I can accomplish. And that's a difficult thing because, like I said, football season's starting and DirecTV's got this amazing offer, free NFL Sunday ticket. But I have to remind myself that I don't get out of church until 1230, so I'm going to miss the first half of the first game. And I have to go back to church for kids' stuff in the afternoon, so I'm going to miss the second half of the second game. So that's really not going to work out for me. So God has d ordained it especially for me not to get DirecTV. But, you know, there, there is those things. There's things that we can give up. There's things that you can say, I want it. As a matter of fact, that's the third one. Eliminate all the garbage from the world that hinders your growth in worshiping God. The world is constantly competing for your worship. If we do have to worship something at all times, if we are worshiping something at all times, it's either God or something else. What is that something else? What needs to be eliminated? What needs to be cut out? The fourth one is this. Prepare your heart for corporate worship. On Saturday night, are you just praying, God, I'm just praying that tomorrow is 
is good for you and it's good for me. And that I come with the right attitude. That, that I come into your house like Ecclesiastes says, my words are few and my heart is in the right place. And it's not about the junk offerings that I'm throwing at you. But instead, it's, it's me. I'm giving you my all. How many times have we done that? How many times have we prepared ourselves in that way? Uh, Camden used to go to a Lutheran school. And uh, during chapel, we would, we would go in. And, and they literally have the little kids standing at the door saying, prepare your hearts and minds for worship. Prepare your hearts and minds for worship as you walked in. There's a little kid that couldn't say his R's. So he'd say, prepare your hearts and minds for worship. And it made it more difficult to actually do that because you're kind of giggling as you walked in. But, you know, it was, isn't that the truth, though? Shouldn't we be prepared as we come in here? Not loaded up with everything else that's going on. The fifth thing is put away distractions during corporate worship. And that could be physical things like your phones or your iPads. And even though we encourage you to, to do the follow along on you version, maybe you're thinking, I've got to check my email. Oh, I've got to do this. Oh, I've got to do that. Or maybe it's just work. Maybe that's the distraction you need to put away. Maybe there's different things that are just weighing down your mind. Put those things away and just focus on who God is. Six, ignore others around you and remember that God is the audience. We already talked about that. I don't mean completely ignore them. You know, meet and greet would be really boring if we all ignored everybody that was around us. But, you know, take that thing and say, it's about you, God, not about what they think. It's about what you think. The seventh thing is, is spend time worshiping God in his creation. Not just with his creation in here, but in his creation. Wasn't Friday just an amazing day? Like 75 degrees, a little rain. Awesome. And how many of us sat inside? How many of us just sat there? Missed out on the opportunity to say, hey, God, you're pretty amazing. Like I said, when, when you go up on top of that mountain, it gives you a whole new perspective of who God is. Because that mountain's tiny compared to him, but it's huge compared to us. And we look out over the city, we look out over the vastness of everything that's out there, and we say, man, God created all that. Or he created a person who helped make all that. God is huge. When we get out in his creation, it changes our minds. And I think we can say, God, here I am. This is me. Laid before you. All of me. Right here. 